Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, we just want to remind you that we have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have Patreon, and most importantly, we have our hotline. Usually we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call us or text us and leave us your story and enjoy this week's episode. Enjoy, everybody. Hello and welcome back, everyone, to another hour of the Acid Cat Spirit. Well, hour. I kind of buried the lead there. I'm the Colonel. This is my son, Caleb. Caleb, how are you? How was your spooky week? I'm good. Uh, my spooky week, I have a couple things. Mm-hmm. One, I went to go use the bathroom the other day at the bar, and I definitely felt some uh, pushback on like, the door. Oh, interesting. Like, like occupied? Yeah, like I I opened the door, it opened it opened like a third of the way and then it felt like someone put their hands against it. And as soon as I stopped pushing cuz I felt that, I figured maybe like there was paper towel that someone threw on the floor or something and it just sure. got stuck. So I pulled it back towards me to get it unstuck and then push it back open. There was nothing on the floor. Ooh. There wasn't resistance when I got to that part again. Uh, we, uh, we'll probably talk about this at some point because we're talking about doing a podcast about the Jerome Grand, mm-hmm. big spooky hotel in Jerome, Arizona. But I stayed there once, and we had a thing happen with the windows where they, like, gave a bunch of resistance and trying to close them, and then I was able to close the window, and then as soon as I did, brace yourselves, folks, uh, the window just shot back up on its own. Uh, and that happened a couple of times. That's what that makes me think of. I wonder if that's a, if anybody knows, leave in the comments, is that a ghost trope that we're unaware of? Is it common for them to, like, Resist a thing and then let go? I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of the other spooky things that happened. One, I showed up to work the other day. Uh, the opener gets there before I do, and I show up after we're already open. And uh, I walk in, and as soon as I walk in, all the lights started changing. Like they went on the cycle where they change colors. Yeah, the backlights did that when I walked in the other day. I didn't turn them on or anything. Yeah, um, and the opener was even like, oh, the ghosts are excited to see you. Like she's <laughs> fully, she's our newest employee, and she's super like already into the lore of the ghosts at the bar. I mean, we're building a lore now. We've even got, you know, we have our two ghosts. We have the woman with the long hair mm-hmm. and the tall, bald guy. And know? Uh, I'm pretty sure I figured out a little bit more lore with um, the woman with the long hair. So, like I said, she's always in this back booth or in the back section of bar, and that's where the bathrooms are, and that's where that one light always changes. Yeah. Um, for easily a month and a half now, uh, the furthest back bathroom, there's two bathrooms, has smelled like old lady perfume. Ooh. It, it, and it'll be random. Uh, I've smelled it... Uh, the bar manager has smelled it, and we at first thought, I mean, it's a bar, so we thought, like, yeah. someone went in there and just applied too much cologne or perfume, but that would make sense for it being, like, a day or two. Yeah. There are some days where the first time we smelled it, like I said, was, like, a month and a half ago. There are some days we'll all go in there, and it's, like, overly pungent, wow. as if someone just applied it. And it's, like, if it was just someone just putting it on too much it wouldn't still be that pungent a month and a half later. Ghost investigators, come check it out. Come check out our bar. I'm telling you, we're haunted. We're here in Kentucky somewhere. You'll find us. Well, we are right now in a very haunted attic. We are. Yeah. <laughs> Since we've been kicked off the spaceship. Well, if you find us right now, it'll probably scare us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I will be very startled if you manage to find us right now. Uh, so will my cat. My cat will be exceptionally frightened. Well, uh, I figured... That's a that is quite the weird um, week. Lots of haunted stuff happening. It's uh, it's always spooky season at the bar. Um, I want to get into headlines a little bit before we get into the main story. The main story this week is a little different for us. It's a current story, and it's something that um, we normally we wouldn't call a conspiracy. Yeah, uh, but the person alleged did so. We figured it was only necessary that maybe we, as conspiracy experts, should maybe means test this and see is there grounds to really call this a conspiracy yeah. uh, or not. This this wasn't really on our radar until the the authority or the attorney was like, 
this is a conspiracy, and we're like, ah, we'll see about that. <laughs> oh, is it now? Yeah, but we'll get to that in a moment, and obviously that's the, the shooting on the, the set of Rust. Yes. Yeah, uh, we'll get into that in just a moment, but I want to start with my first uh, headline story, which is, um, so last Friday, there's a group called Direct Denial of Secrets, DDoS. Uh, they dumped 1.8 terabytes of uh, illegal uh, surveillance through helicopters mm-hmm. of various police departments around the country. Uh, and in that footage, I definitely urge you to check it out. It's on their website. Again, that's Directed Denial of Secrets. Um, there's a lot of footage of cops just harassing people in their helicopters, flying over neighborhoods to harass people who might be doing something wrong. It's a lot of, like, minority report, thought crime kind of shit. Yeah. Uh, I suggest not reading it or looking at it if you're having a nice day, if you're enjoying your day. But if you're having a already kind of an ACAB-heavy sort of day, it's definitely worth fueling the fire. Um, but yeah, this is a trigger warning in terms of getting really fucking pissed off at the cops because it's gonna, it's just such, it's a helicopter is one thing, but now that drones are becoming more common, uh, it's the surveillance state that we're looking to enter into, at least until we decide to get rid of some of these things. And the precedent in the U S is that something bad's going to have to happen. There's going to have to be a use case where somebody misuses it and then they can't use it. Mm-hmm. The police are still going to be allowed these things. So it's, I don't know. It's my, my, my tin hat is unfortunately like growing a little bit taller every day. I don't, I, when I remember when I was younger, I'd turn to my father when we were listening to coast to coast in the garage and I'd be like, how do these people get like this? You know, like how do you think that there's lizard people running the world? And while it's not lizard people for me, I worry that like, mm-hmm. I'm like, these things are growing in my mind and I'm like slowly participating <laughs> in a delusion. So I, yeah, it's a it's kind of scary. I find that super interesting. I have a buddy that lives out in Glendale, in California, and he says like that's the most common city name, by the way. Interesting. In the US. Yeah, there are more Glendales than any other city. I figured it'd be like Clarksville or something like well, that. Well, Glendale basically just means Townville. Oh yeah. So you know, yeah, like, yeah. It's not named after. It's not the surname Glen. It's Glen like a Glen, like yeah. a, a small wooded town. Welcome, welcome to Town Town. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Villageville. We've got some people. <laughs> Uh, but he says, like, every other day a helicopter flies over his house. That's, and I don't know, that's, you know, I've lived in a lot of large cities, and you get kind of used to it. Living in Hong Kong was funny because, like, as surveillance-heavy as the Chinese are, none of it's not surveillance like that. Here it's so militarized because we fetishize military stuff so much. Yeah. So it's helicopters and, like, big scary cameras and stuff. There it's the social credit system, and it's mm-hmm. all more algorithmic. But I don't know. Obviously, it's not better, but it's almost more polite to be subversive about it. Like, I don't need a helicopter flying over my house to scare me out of, I don't know, doing whatever thing you're going to say is morally objectable. Yeah. It's not like, because I say it that way, because what you're doing in your home, I mean, barring having, you know, some serial killer dungeon, which is a tremendous exception. Yeah. What you're doing in your home is probably your business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your business and crime, my first headline comes from a small town in Kentucky, Corbin, Kentucky, where a woman is facing several charges, including second-degree assault for stabbing a man. Yes. Um, this man uh, was her neighbor who graciously lended her a sex toy, uh, and when he went over there to ask for it back, she uh, had a kitchen knife in her hand, an argument ensued. And uh, she then stabbed him in the chest with a kitchen knife. Um, and you might be thinking, what could make this story any better? Yeah, man, that must be a really special butt plug. <laughs> One, uh, <laughs> when the police showed up, she was sweeping her porch. <laughs> and two, that neighbor, that man that lent her, uh, lent her the sex toy was also her cousin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I'm glad you leave that twist for the end. That's a very Kentucky story. That is a frighteningly Kentucky story. Yeah. Um, he he lent her the toy. He went back over. He was like, hey, can I have that back? She was like, no. Um, get off my property. And he was like, no, give me back my toy. And then stabbed him. I like to think this is one of those, like, she he thought it was a loan. She thought it was, like, a gift. Situations. Yeah. yeah. I wish this would have gone to small claims court. Like, what are you suing the defendant for? $130 and $400 in damages. What for? She stole my butt plug and she won't give it back. The The funny thing is all the articles I've read uh, 
don't disclose what the sex toy was. I know. I yeah. I keep saying butt plug. It's my assumption because they both got buttholes. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that the Jenna. We're not getting into that conversation right now. Everybody has a butthole. That's what we're going with. That's my gender identity. I have an asshole. That's I have one. That's all you need to know. Uh, but yeah, so I assume that it's a butt plug. But I who knows? I guess yeah. It could definitely. It could be a big beautiful dildo. You know, like there could be. It, maybe it was a rabbit. I don't know why he'd have one. You know. Those are sort of the like more sought after sex toys for women are definitely designed for women. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe she just, maybe there was sentimental value. Maybe, maybe it was like <laughs> their cousins, right? So like maybe it was her mother's dildo and she thought it was unfair that when her mother died, he got it. And he's like, you're my fucking cousin. You're not even in this family directly. Your daddy's just brothers with the dildo owner. <laughs> that was Pa's pocket pussy. I have any right to it as much as you do. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> for all we know, this was a totally fair and understandable argument, and that's how you know that we live in Kentucky. <laughs> hey, uh, we, we managed to rationalize. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I suppose if you wouldn't give me my daddy's pocket pussy back, I'd probably stab you too. Hey, uh, cousin, could I get the officially licensed Riley Reed pocket pussy back? No, it's in the dishwasher. <laughs> You'll get it back on Tuesday like we agreed. <laughs> and this, my friends, is why you should invest in the blockchain and NFTs. Because if your pocket pussy was an <laughs> NFT, you would be the sole owner of it. <laughs> unless somebody wanted to right-click and save it. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a totally very different story, but it's it's funny. Uh, we are officially at the future for all the people who are like, where are my flying cars? Uh South Korea's got you. So South Korea, uh, Seoul, is going to be uh, the home to the metaverse, I've heard, which is interesting. I will say that Seoul is definitely the most artistic. Uh, South Korea is an incredibly artistic. Uh, Taiwan is as well. Um, nation, like mm -hmm. more so than most. Uh, so they're introducing a fleet of flying taxis. Nice. Yeah, which is like as futuristic and cool as possible. Normally, I would probably be a little cynical about this. I'm... I mean, I'm excited because it's a fun idea, but the idea of there now being cars in the sky logistically, I'm a motorcycle rider and bicyclist before I'm anything else. So like, yeah, scares the <laughs> shit out of me. Like, oh, cool. They're going to be in the immortal words of the worst Star Wars movie made. They fly now, you know, like it's going to be flown for thousands of years. What are you talking about? <laughs> so many. Ha there are so many jetpacks. There were jetpacks in the old republic. What are you talking about, Poe? <laughs> you were originally my guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the idea that there could be taxis in the sky does scare the crap out of me. What does make me, um, I'll say, optimistic about it is that it's Korea. So they have a lot more of uh, infrastructure for public transit, and I'm going to go ahead and share the hot take that they have more of an appreciation for public transit. Yeah. Uh, and more people use it. So in theory, this could... It's a, it's a good condition for this to work. And I'm really optimistic because that's cool as fuck. And that gets us one like one step closer to a real-life Lilu multipass. You know? mm -hmm. like the fifth element comes a little bit closer, and that's exciting. I think it's a, a super fun dig at North Korea, too. <laughs> South Korea is like, oh, you can barely get rockets to fly. You know, the thing's designed to fly. We're making fucking taxis fly over <laughs> here, dude. What are you doing? Yeah, the little <laughs> shitty red and white cars. Ours fly. What How's that rocket doing? going? Oh, still barely can make it off the ground? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, good luck getting food. We got flying taxis. Uh, my final article before we get into the main story this week is uh, Carmen Mola, uh, a popular Spanish novelist, won an award for her novel uh, The Beast, and it actually won first prize and oh, got a million day. euros. And um, when they called her up to stage to accept this reward, uh, three men walked up, Antonio Mancero, uh, Agustin Martinez and Jorge Diaz walked up to stage to claim the reward because she is known to be quite a reclusive author. And um, instead of accepting the reward on her behalf, they said, hey, guys, we got to be truthful with you. Four years ago, we made her up. <laughs> uh, we've been catfishing all of you. Uh, yep. It's a pen name. I, I think when you're an author, it's a little more acceptable, right? Yeah. Well, and like the, we've talked about it before on the show, but the Shakespeare idea, the Shakespeare was multiple people, not just one. Um, the quote from uh, Jorge Diaz says, Carmen Mola is not, like the lies we've been telling, a university professor. <laughs> She's instead 
three friends who one day, four <laughs> years ago, decided to combine our talents to tell a story. This is going to be a really mediocre sitcom on CBS in two years. Three guys in a book. <laughs> <laughs> three guys, a book, and a pizza place. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, good. that's funny, man. Just super short, super funny of like, Hey, you know, your favorite author, she's not real. She's three dudes. I know. <laughs> and like an author who's like renowned for being like bold and unafraid and three men stacked <laughs> on top of each other in, in one a trench coat yeah. trying to get into a movie. Like, yeah. What are they? The fucking little rascals? Uh, it's super funny. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, what's not funny no. is the main story that we're getting into today. Yes. Uh, it's obviously at this point, I would imagine that the people listening to the show, pretty much everybody has heard about this in one way or another. We're going to do our best to be um, pretty informative Caleb's got a very good rundown of all the details of the case because um, it is still an open case. Yes. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, we are talking today about the shooting on the set of Rust. Uh, I hesitate to talk about this too much, again, because it's still an open case and because it's such a serious issue. You know, we have a tendency to talk about uh, history's mysteries. And while last week we talked about a very relevant plane crash, it was a something that... Uh, like an objectively devious pair of people. You know, it's a slightly different context. Here, yeah. there's not really a, a clear-cut bad guy, um, There, un unless there is. Yes. Uh, and I guess that's why we're talking about it today, and that's because uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the uh, armorer involved in this uh, killing, uh, obviously somebody who, not no pun intended, the crosshairs are on, uh, her defense lawyer has decided that it was a conspiracy and yep. that their official stance was that she was set up. And when we heard that, our tinfoil ears perked up and we were like, I'm sorry, a what now? We stopped listening to last night's Coast to Coast. <laughs> stopped talking about that really cool UFO sighting that was in France. If you guys haven't seen that, go check those videos out. Um, and we were like, okay, well, we know conspiracies. So yes. why don't we see if we can see what merits are. Does this, does this have uh, a, a JFK like quality you does know, it is does it have that nice conspiracy theory twang to it you know and uh we're talking about it today because yeah as it turns out there might be uh there's we can tell you right now there's definitely going to be a part two to this episode because it's still an ongoing case but there will be a part two because the evidence that has come up thus far by all accounts does actually speak in favor of there being a conspiracy, which is pretty wild. But we'll get to that here in a second. I'm going to let Caleb explain what happened, um, and we'll get into sort of the the more grim details, and then we'll move on past that and get into some of the more... Uh, uh, the We'll talk less about the shooting. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who are not aware of what we're talking about, uh, Rust is a movie that is currently in production. Well, the production's haunt, uh, halted right now, haunted. Although we'll get into that, because by all accounts, it seems like the set might be. Yes. Um but what happened, uh, the movie is based about, in the 1800s, a 13-year-old uh, kid accidentally shot a rancher and goes on the run because he is sentenced to hang. He goes on the run with his grandpa, who is a famed outlaw by the name of Rust. So that's what the movie's about, which is a very large coincidence, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, and also uh, has notes reminiscent of, I guess, probably what, a GOP's platonic ideal of Kyle Rittenhouse is. Yeah. You know? Which, if you're not keeping up with that, talk about crocodile tears. Whew. But... Yeah, man, that is the... Somebody said that that's the face that my boyfriend made when I caught him cheating on me, and that couldn't have been more accurate. Yeah, the, 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 I'm a little, bartender. I've been one for a long time. I can confirm that's what a fake sad face is. The What really sold it for me is halfway through his fake cry when he glances over at the jury yeah. to see if it's working and then <laughs> yeah. continues to fake cry. But, um... No, uh, the titular Rust is played by Alec Baldwin, who, while setting up for a scene that was taking place in a church, uh, he has to quick draw his pistol from a holster. And they were setting up the scene, they were doing run-throughs, and he first was doing the run-through, drew the pistol, no problem, put it back in his holster, then tried to practice it again. But when he did it, the hammer went down, and a bullet did fire from the gun, a live round. It, a live round. It struck the cinematographer who was setting up the shot, went into her chest, out the back, and into the shoulder of the director of the film. Uh, paramedics were called. They were brought out. Uh, they were both taken to the hospital. After a couple hours, the cinematogra uh, cinematographer was uh, pronounced deceased, 
and the director did have serious injuries, went into surgery, and survived. And he's actually how we'd know that it was a live round, because the live round was removed from his shoulder. Yes, yes, they still found the live round in his shoulder. Um, That started uh, a big investigation, because when anything goes wrong on a movie set, Things open up. They, you have to understand why things happen. Yeah. Well, you know, historically, it doesn't happen all that often, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's been happening more often um, due to the. We'll get into the IATSE strike and uh, what role it may have played in this uh, murder, whether it was conspiratorial or accidental. Um, they could have played a role either way, but yeah, there's you know, it when something like this happens, it has to be talked about. Uh, famously. Uh, Brandon Lee was shot on the set of The Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, and we I want to make two things abundantly clear right off the top. Um, I know I'm usually just here for color commentary, but uh, two things. One, Alec Baldwin is not responsible for this. It's not. There are a lot of people who are responsible. We want to make it abundantly clear. We're not big Alec Baldwin fans. That's not what's going on here. Um, I think he's just a butthead from Hollywood like anybody else. But that being said, the person in that position, it's not his job to check that firearm. Um, at any point, at no point is it his job. He's also been quoted by other armors who worked with him as being uh, very safe to work with. He follows the rules. He's a smart guy. He knows what to do with a cold gun. He knows yeah. how it works. Um, and I I just think it's very unfair that the headlines immediately read that he, while he did absolutely, he is unfortunately the one who shot Helena. He, um, it's not his fault. Yeah. It's weird to think that that's even possible, but it is. So yeah. uh, I want to make that abundantly clear. And the other thing is, yeah, I want to talk about Brandon Lee briefly. So Brandon was killed because the way that the round they used in that firearm, it was a slightly different gun. Um, and it wasn't uh, a dummy rounds are, they look like real bullets, but they have BBs on the inside and on the bottom of the casing, there's a little hole drilled into it. So you can tell a uh, real bullet obviously is a little heavier and doesn't, make any sound when you shake it around Mm -hmm. and then you have blanks and blanks are usually just gunpowder and uh no projectile at all and then they're crimped at the front uh or there's a piece of paper or Mm -hmm. flash or something like that so that when you fire that weapon it still lets out the gas it still lets out the smoke and the spark so it still looks like a real firearm but doesn't fire anything well in brandon's case the blank hadn't been totally cleared from the chamber. A portion of it was still in there and basically became the projectile that we know as a bullet. So when you think of a bullet, what's in the end of the casing, that's what ended up in that gun. So he was actually shot with a projectile. Yes. But he wasn't shot with a bullet, which is what makes this case... um, It's what makes this case... I don't want to say more attractive because that sounds so ugly, but maybe, maybe we're being ugly. Maybe it is attractive, but her case of being set up is more compelling because it was an actual bullet that was a guarantee to murder whoever it was pointed at or yes. cause an issue on an already dangerous set, which we'll get into. But why don't you get, I'll let you get back to the details. Yeah. Um, so the police show up and they already start asking questions and they want to know who all had a hold of the gun. Well, like we said, it's the armor's job and the armor is a big character to play in all this. It's, Hannah uh, Gutierrez Reed. Yeah, Gutierrez. Gutierrez. Yeah, it's okay. Um, my Spanish is terrible. <laughs> we'll get you there. <laughs> uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about her, but it's her job to watch over any of the weapons that are on a movie set. That's an armor's job. Yep. You think everyone on a movie set should have a job. Yeah, that's not fair. always the case. Yeah, and I also <laughs> said, you know, if it's not Alec Baldwin's fault, whose yes. fault is it? And realistically, an, uh, an assistant director is usually in charge of making sure that everything going on is safe and the armor ultimately is the person in charge of the guns. You're also going to have a prop master. Prop master is going to be in charge of prop guns or anything like that. But when it comes to live munitions, dummy rounds, the making of rounds, the loading of rounds, the clearing of guns, the announcement of the clearance of guns, all Mm -hmm. of those things. She also is the one who's in charge of storing them. She keeps the guns in a safe, uh, but not the ammunition, which we're going to get to. Uh, So ultimately it's important to know that the armor's responsibility is almost wholly this situation because if she was set up this would be a good way to do it yes yeah and that's we again coming from this we're entirely uh non-biased here we have no bias present we just know they called it a conspiracy so we want to see if it has merits and yeah there are some so it's important to keep that in your mind that if you were going to frame somebody this would be a good way to do it yes uh so she's in charge of all the weapons uh throughout the story i'll refer to her as hannah 
Um, Hannah's in charge of all the weapons. It is her job to make sure they are loaded correctly. It is her job to make sure that the actors know what they're doing. And as she has even said herself, it is, quote, her job to make people feel safe and comfortable around firearms. Um, so she is one person we'll talk about. David Halls is another person we're going to talk about. He is the assistant director. Um, and like you said, assistant director's job is while the director is directing the movie, making sure everything is looking good, sounding good, everything like that, the assistant director is, to bring it into our world, the bar back. I was about to say the exact yeah. same thing, yeah. He is making sure the ship doesn't sink. Yep. So uh, I am the, uh, basically, I'm the manufacturer. I'm the factory. Yeah. You need to make sure that I always have the raw materials to stay manufacturing, and that's what he does. Exactly. And so he would be the one liaising between the armor and, in this case, Baldwin or anybody else about the firearms. And when it comes to safety protocol with firearms on a movie set, uh, I will say as someone who has been on a movie set and in a movie. Yeah, we both Yeah, we yeah. both have on-set experience. Um, there are safety protocols you have to follow, even if you are using... All the movies that I've worked on that have had guns have been airsoft weapons. Yep. Um, There's still safety protocols with those. Yeah, even with rubber guns. Yes. Uh, you do not want to take an airsoft gun and accidentally shoot someone in the temple. As someone that also does airsoft, that's incredibly painful. Well, famously, there was an actor. His name is missing from my mind, but it's more important that you know that it happened than necessarily his name. Um a few years, I believe it was in the 90s, had a scene where uh, during between between scenes, he had an incident between scenes where he was playing with uh, a, a revolver, had one blank in there, like Russian roulette, thought mm -hmm. it wouldn't do anything, pulled the trigger, and that the gas pressure from that was enough. Because, yeah, there's not a projectile, but there's still enough gas to push one through your skull. So if it's close enough, it might crack your skull, and in this case, it did. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be really careful. And airsoft guns can hurt eyes. They can hurt all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had I've had an airsoft BB lodged in my cheek where I had to pop it out like a pimple, <laughs> uh, and that's because someone was just messing around. They thought it wasn't loaded, and they had it up to my cheek, and they pulled the trigger, and it just embedded itself in there. Yeah. And so gun safety is super important when it comes to a movie set or especially in a building. Yep. And the chain of command when it comes to these weapons are the armor, make sure it's loaded properly and it's safe. They hand it to the assistant director that does a second check, and then the assistant director, after doing his second check, hands it to the actor. The actor uses it for the scene, and as soon as the scene is over, hands it back to the assistant director. The assistant director hands it back to the armor, and the armor locks it back up. Yep. That is not the case with this case. No, and it is important to point out that the majority of uh, film sets do use airsoft guns or prop guns nowadays. And also, you can fire uh, blanks and bullets from a lot of prop firearms, depending yes. on the type. If they're an airsoft gun, obviously not, but a lot of older prop guns. And Westerns have this problem a lot. We should point out that this is a problem that's unique to Westerns, and there being a live bullet in there and how Helena was shot is also... All of that is sort of a result of it being a Western, because uh, Hannah was asked in a an interview while they were shooting it about the experience. And she said that her experience with blanks had um, sort of increased. She was notorious for learning on the job, yep. which is, man, I don't know enough about specifically being an armorer. I know that if you learn to be a sound guy on the job, you'll get fired. I know that if you learn to be a grip on the job, you'll be fired. Mm -hmm. So learning to uh, do the gun stuff yeah. on the job seems like um, a shitty way to do it, especially when you're the daughter of like a prestige armor. Like her father's a very well respected armor in the mm -hmm. business. That's not enough to just say you know how to do this. But I'm I don't want my bias to show. That's that's like if imagine you, the viewer, is in charge of a 1.2 billion dollar movie set, uh, the production. And you, the person in charge of making sure your movie looks good, the cinematographer, they're like, have you done this before? And they're like, no, but I've seen a couple movies. I can figure it out. Yeah. You're not going to want to continue hiring that person. Absolutely. So she mentioned that it being a problem, the reason that they weren't just firing blanks through this gun, the reason that there would have been a dummy round that could have been mistaken for a real round is because... Internet nerds will get upset when you have a close-up shot of a firearm. There's certain. I grew up in a traditional, uh, like, stage acting family. My uncle is a prolific Shakespearean actor and coach. 
I used to do, you know, Shakespeare in the Park and Lincoln Park and Central Park and stuff. And I love the theater. Mm -hmm. I like the grandiosity. I like the exaggeration. Uh, I just watched uh, The Harder They Fall. This is an yes. appropriate thing. Fantastic. It's very good. I suggest everybody watch it. But the way that they portray violence in it is a way that should be portrayed, especially in a Western. It's a little outrageous. It's a little over the top. Mm -hmm. The desire for realism, the desire for everything to be exactly right, drives these sort of shots. So they need to put these dummy rounds in there so that you see that there is a bullet, so that the movie doesn't lose, get... Uh, and I know that this all sounds like apologetic stuff, but it's just something to keep in your mind. They want to run these rounds. Why would she have been doing something that could have been dangerous? Well, that's because she was asked to do something that was kind of dangerous, and that's because there's a pressure on these film sets to have very accurate weapons and very accurate shots because they're these historical pieces. And mm -hmm. because of that, it makes the thing more dangerous. So maybe keep in your mind when you want to jump on and complain about how they're, I couldn't see the bullets inside the chamber of the revolver in that movie. Well, that's because they omitted them so that no one would get shot. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just want to, this is the old man and me coming out, but I just, I think it's important for us to remember sometimes the pressures don't just start at the first person. Sometimes they come from much further away. Yeah. And that's why they exist. It's easy for a pernicious fear to exist if you can't put a finger on who's causing it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, somebody won't like this. Oh, well, shit. Then we're going to have to do something else, just yes. in case. Um, so now I want to get into everything that went wrong Yeah. on that day. So a long list. I, I just said exactly how it should be. The gun should be locked in a locker at the very least, be taken out, be inspected be hand by the armor, be handed to the assistant director who looks it over, hands it to the actor who needs it just for the scene, and then it goes through those stages in reverse and gets locked back up. Well, the shooting ended up happening around 3 p.m., and when I say the gun should be stored in a locker, uh, it wasn't. The gun, uh, the locker was unlocked, and the gun was unaccounted for from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And that was initially lied about as well. Yes, yes. Uh, it should be important that Wells has changed his story um, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Not a number of times, but his story has changed quite a bit over the you know few weeks that this has had to sort of sit as the litigation begins. Um, so that's the one glaring issue. Yeah. Uh, the gun was unaccounted for for three hours. Um, it was not in the locker. She did not grab it from the locker when she did hand it to David. Um, so that's issue number one. Issue number two is she said she was pretty sure that she loaded dummy rounds in there. Um, like you said in that podcast interview she did, she is very hesitant about dummy rounds. She's like, they look very similar to the real thing. But she was very confident that they were dummy rounds because she said they were no live rounds on set whatsoever. They had no need for live rounds. There were no live rounds. So when she saw that there was a bullet at the edge of the casing, she knew, oh, it's a dummy round because if it was crimped, it'd be a blank. And I only have the two. So she loaded six dummy rounds into the chamber, latched it, handed it to David, the assistant director, to which he is supposed to thoroughly look through it. He is quoted on saying, well, I was kind of in a rush. Great thing to say. Yeah, and obviously this is coming. What I was just talking about spoke to it. This speaks to it. But the overarching theme that uh, they hurried through this and that that hurry uh, endangers people's safety. Whether um, whether Hannah's correct and her defense team is correct and she was set up or not, it's important to highlight the lack of safety and accountability. Let's not forget that just... Days before this happened, IATSE, the largest union in show business, all of the people who do these jobs, mm -hmm. was about to go on strike because of working conditions. Yes. Um, so these weren't safe sets. And a lot of that was, uh, there was a, a accident, I believe it was 2014, where someone was killed on set by a train. Uh, and that has set all of this in motion. So this happening does continue to prove that point, but that could speak to a greater conspiracy as well, but we'll talk about that here in a minute. Yeah. Please, by all means, continue. Uh, so he says that she opened um, the cylinder, which, if you're not familiar with a revolver, cylinders what hold the six bullets. It swivels out. You it's spin the fun it. thing that spins. Yeah. And uh, then you go. Latches back in. Um, he said that he was in a bit of a hurry. She handed it to him. He opened it. He saw three rounds. She loaded six. He saw three rounds. 
didn't take them out to look at them, just saw that they were in there, closed it, told Baldwin, oh, yeah, it's fine, and handed it to him. Well, he is super adamant that he said that it was a cold gun, which little lingo, hot gun is a gun that either shoots blanks or live ammunition. Yeah, a hot, yeah, a hot gun can have either. Yeah, it, I, a hot gun either has blanks or live ammunition. Any gun that has any sort of gunpowder in it is a hot gun. A cold gun is a gun that only has dummy rounds or is empty. Yep. It has never seen gunpowder. Well, he is super adamant that he says, this is a cold gun, it is safe, here you go. So Baldwin put it in his holster, practiced, shot, that's what happened. Well, a couple of eyewitnesses have come forward, one stating, hey, that gun wasn't locked up. It was unaccounted for from 11 to 1. Um, another eyewitness says that David never stated whether or not it was a hot or cold gun. He just handed the gun to Baldwin without saying anything. He said, you're good to go, and handed him the gun. That's a big glaring issue. Yep. Um, you might be thinking, well, where did that gun go from 11 to 1? That's another incredibly glaring issue, and that is another crew member that came forward when the investigation was going on, and he says, I know where that gun was from 11 to 1 p.m. And they said, oh, where was it? He said, well, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but me and a couple of crew members were bored on set. We knew that Hannah never locked up the guns. We brought live ammunition with us. We took three of the guns from the unlocked locker, went out to the desert, and went plinking. Which, if you're not familiar with plinking, it's just... That's shooting cans. It's shooting, shooting cans and, and shooting bottles. Yep. So, three crew Stuff members... Stuff you do with the dump. Three crew members who aren't supposed to have anything to do with these weapons took these weapons, put live ammunition in these weapons, took them out to the desert, shot them for three hours, and then brought them back. Yep. So, that, I mean... If we're just talking about pure negligence and pure people not doing their jobs correctly, we have three crew members, we have the armor, and we have the assistant director that have all failed epically with negligence. And that's just in this specific instance. Let's go yes. further into the negligence. Yes. It's not as though this was the first time this had happened on this set. Days previous, mm -hmm. at this point, people probably have heard this, but uh, people walked off set. Members of the crew walked off set because they felt that the environment was dangerous because what had happened, Caleb? Um, two days before, two accidental prop gun discharges. Mm, weird. Two um, more guns that went off when they weren't supposed yep. to go off. Uh, Baldwin stunt double accidentally fired two rounds the Saturday before the shooting after being told that the gun was cold. Um, crew members who witnessed the episode told the LA Times there should have been an investigation into what happened that day. There were no safety meetings. There was no assurance that it wouldn't happen again. All they want to do was rush, rush, rush. And there was there was a safety meeting in the morning of the shooting. Mm -hmm. um, it was 8 in the morning. Um, however, this obviously, it didn't matter. It's also important to point out that when Baldwin was practicing the shot the first time, when he pulled the gun out, several shells just fell out of the chamber. Yep. Uh, and at no point anybody said that was an issue. He pointed it out and was like, is this a problem? And they were like, no, it's a cold gun. doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And he was like, oh. Okay, and then he took the shot. Um, there was a great deal of negligence. And again, this is on the eve, basically, the, the doorstep of the IATSE strike. Mm -hmm. This is in an environment where everybody is being rushed so much. And the union, obviously the union has a lot of pressure because of their numbers. Well, this set was known, David Wells specifically was known for being, and Reed were both known for being adamantly anti-union, correct? Yes. Uh, they're both very anti-union and they are both known for being pretty negligent on set. Um, to talk about Reed or Hannah, um, this is her second movie of all times. She, it's her third movie she's worked on, but the first movie she was a, uh, costuming assistant. Uh, the first movie she worked on was a Nicolas Cage Western who he demanded she be fired from after, uh, without announcement, discharging a gun twice near the cast and crew to which he stood up, said, hey, give us a little bit of a heads up. You just blew my fucking eardrums out. Get the fuck off the set. Dude, could you imagine being too much of a wild card for Nick Cage? I know. <laughs> hey, 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 absolutely not. 
No way. I was in the middle, middle of eating my own shit and praying to an Egyptian god. You have to stop what you're doing. I was putting a down payment on the golden pyramid that I'm going to be buried in alongside my golden-crusted T-Rex skull. <laughs> he was like, get the fuck out of here. And she was like, I'm so sorry, Mr. Cage. And he was like, you know to call me Elvis. <laughs> um, then she was known to be super negligent then. Uh, David was also known to cut corners and cut costs on movies that he was uh, in charge of. Which is scary because wasn't he also, he worked on the sequel to The Crow, right? Yes. He did work on the sequel to The Crow, which he should know how important gun safety is. Yeah, like how do you work on the sequel to the movie where the first death to happen on set in a number of years and like, you know, one of the most terrifying ones and mm -hmm. how's that not burned into your head even if you didn't work on that set yeah you worked with people who did like how do you i don't know man that's such a critical amount of a lack of self-awareness and like you said they were both notorious uh anti-union which plays a big part into one of the theories that we'll get into here in a second but hours before the shooting eight crew members left the set because they were union they reached out they were like, this place is unsafe. Uh, they are not giving us proper housing. They're housing us in a place that is an hour away. They even made shirts that said 404 house not found. Yep. Um, and they said they have gone several weeks without being paid. Yeah. Which is no stranger to a David production. Yes. <laughs> he, yeah, like yeah. I said, would cut corners and cut costs. Um, I think that this has pulled the veil back a little bit for some people. I think they think most productions are like really fun and there's all this mm -hmm. money going around and guys we're in Hollywood, but the truth is, unfortunately the majority of them are like this. They're meat grinders where people who have real lives and are trying to do real things are treated like they're objects and treated for the fuel that they have and then discarded immediately. Um, Helena, the cinematographer that was shot she actually was so supportive of the crew members that were union that she um, canceled a request for a very expensive crane to do a couple crane shots so they could be brought closer, yeah. so the crew could be have housing closer to the set. But even though she canceled that, they were still put an hour away. Yeah, yeah, which is, I mean, that's a long drive, man. The mm -hmm. working conditions, and it's not like you're driving an hour to go sit around as a white hat for five or six hours and driving back. You're going to work on your feet, carrying shit in the hot sun with no food and no care for 12 to 16 hours, yep. and you drive your ass home. You have three hours of very tortured sleep. You're probably going to have to get drunk or stoned or take a bunch of sleeping pills. And you're going to wake up in the morning and do your best to kick that hangover and go back to work. And people are like, well, why aren't you getting the fucking job done? Well, how would you get the job done exactly? You know, yeah. like these people are being brutalized and they're doing their best to, you know, put out work that they can be prideful of, to be able to have a career that they can be proud of. And all it's leading them into is the mouth of madness. So, yeah, these people were ready to strike. And obviously we support that 100 yeah. percent. We're very pro-union people, always side with labor. Those are the real people. Those Co are the people doing the job. Corporations so. <laughs> aren't real people. Hate to break it to everybody. Um, yeah. So obviously the working conditions here were dire. Um, now, could she have been set up? That is what we're here to theorize because that's what was presented to us. Uh, her attorney at the beginning of this trial said, um, first, it was clearly sabotage. Um, I'm telling all of y'all. <laughs> it was sabotage. Uh, yesterday, as we're filming this, it is, uh, what is today? The 11th? Yes. Yeah. So on the 10th. Um, they went in again. Uh, he insisted that she was, quote, framed. Yep. And since then, they've said that they believe that the crime scene was uh, adulterated. Yes. Between the shooting and the time of investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of big, these are big ass claims, man. This is, it's not a plea of insanity. I'm not playing that down or something. But you yeah. know, it's a, it's a big, I know this is the day and age of the big lie and all of that stuff and QAnon and shit. We were joking. We saw a headline today that three out of four people believe that Facebook is bad for uh, society. And, yeah, it's because the other one believes in QAnon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so, yeah, we do that. definitely live in the age of misinformation. Shout out to the people who are still waiting for JFK Jr. to show up. <laughs> to just stand in a Dealey Plaza steal. <laughs> what are you doing? Go home. Go, Go home. to your family that hates you. Yeah. <laughs> This is why. You got a kid that hates you that needs to go to high school. Like, go, yeah, go home. 
been at soccer practice for seven <laughs> days. Uh, but yeah, so there's, I understand that in the age of misinformation, it can be easy to, to sort of claim, well, it's a conspiracy. The entire world's against me. That's what really happened. Yeah. Uh, but there is some evidence here. However, for her to have been set up, there would have to be a motivation to set her up. So mm-hmm. if she didn't, if this wasn't negligence, which is really what it sounds like it was. It yeah. sounds like she wasn't paying attention to her bullets. She looked at them and went, oh, yeah, those are totally, those are definitely not real bullets, even though she has no reason to believe that because she hasn't been looking at it all day. Yeah. It should be pointed out that the the ammunition, while being kept outside on a cart, was kept in a cart and in a fanny pack. Yeah. It's, this was stuff being kept in a pile. So... It sounds like it's probably negligence, but that's not what they say. They say it wasn't negligence. So if it wasn't negligence, who could have set her up? Well, there's kind of, I have two big arguments I think that we both agree on. Yep. The first one is, uh, well, the union could have done it because mm-hmm. if the working conditions were that bad and they were on the precipice of a strike, a uh, an accident on set. Now, I hesitate because I don't think... We'll get into this theory, but in this theory, I don't think anybody intended for anybody to get hurt. Yes. I think they were hoping that maybe a live round would go off in practice. Because, again, in this case, both of the victims weren't standing where they were expected to be standing. Yeah, so... When they had run through the scene earlier in the day with Wells, mm -hmm. they were standing in a different position because the light had changed. Uh, And a lot of times, the way a movie set works is... You will set up the camera, especially on a bigger movie set, you will set up the camera and then you will go to what is called, everyone has a different name for it, it's either uh, Tent City or Film Village or anything like that, and that is a tent where all the monitors- Gorilla position. Where all the monitors are set up, and so you are not, it's not like you shooting a home movie with your friends, you are not actively behind the camera. These are multi-million dollar giant ass cameras that you set up. And then you go stand behind a Batman's wall of screens to make sure everything looks good. Yeah. Well, and in a lot of cases for safety, if you guys have watched MythBusters, those uh, the you know the plexiglass screens they used to blow shit up, they'd hide behind them. Those are from Hollywood. That's where yeah. they got those from. Well, those yeah. guys were prop makers. Yeah, but, those guys were Hollywood guys. But that's that's what that's for. Like if you've ever wondered, like oh that's a good idea. Yeah, it's every Hollywood set, every tent city's like that. Especially if they have any sort of firearms, any explosion, anything like that going on. A car scene. If they have a car that has to you know drive by quickly, they'll put up one of those shields in case rocks get tossed mm-hmm. or whatever. It, it's they're usually kept pretty far away. And uh, while he was practicing, he was supposed to. The scene is he draws it, quick fires, and has the gun pointed directly at the camera. Well, the cinematographer and the director were setting up the shot, so that's why they were behind the camera and not in Tent City. So I fully believe that if it was Union and they were trying to get an accident to happen on set, they figured, let's put a live round in for this scene so Baldwin shoots the camera. Yeah, he's going to shoot the camera. The ex- incredibly expensive camera. Well, also, it's sensational. How scary. Yeah. You know? yeah. Nobody gets hurt. No one gets hurt, but... That wasn't the case. It, it'll stop shooting, you know. Like it would, it would be very effective if you were trying to, if your plan was to disrupt the set and make it look as unsafe as it is to the outside world, to mm-hmm. the outside, because th- something like that happens. You know, those discharges happened. We didn't hear anything about it really. You know, it didn't make it past variety. You know, that yeah. sort of stuff didn't really come any further than that. But when somebody gets shot or something, I think had he shot a camera, had he discharged an actual round into a camera, yeah, I think had that scene been run through the way that Wells thought it was going to be run through, which I think is important to remember, uh, it would have been safe for him to have fired well a number of bullets. Because nobody would have been standing there. Yes. Uh, even if they were standing further in the room, <laughs> like Reed likes to shoot guns off in, it still would have been safe for them. They wouldn't have mm-hmm. been hurt. They would have just been upset. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I think that there's something there. And uh, I don't know. The idea of them being set up, there's there's like some, some meat on that. Yeah, like if you are disgruntled union workers whose multiple pleas, including one where a crew member after the shooting happened, before they knew what had happened, sent a uh, text message to their union rep that said, there have now been three accidental discharges. This is not a safe set. And you get nothing. No one's investigating. No one investigated the two days prior. No one's listening to you be like, hey, they're treating us like shit. This place isn't safe. Yeah, like, and everybody on this set has experience. Everybody here, except for Hannah Reed. Yeah. Uh, 
everybody could see it's been clear afterwards. There's been a number of Facebook posts. There's been a number of uh, crew members that have spoken up to say that, yeah, it was a very dangerous environment. It was being very rushed. We were very uncomfortable with it. And that's Wells's reputation. Yeah. So if you know that, if you know Wells is dangerous, if you know that he has a history of not caring about these things and you want to make a point, well, when he's walking through the scene, you're like, oh, shit. Well, what if he has the gun while he's doing the walkthrough? He shoots this camera and then maybe it never even gets in the hands of Baldwin, you yeah. know? So in terms of there being a larger conspiracy and her being set up, because they're the defense isn't necessarily saying that she's the target of a conspiracy, but more the victim of a conspiracy. Yes. So that would make us think that, well, then they're probably going after Halls. I would imagine that somebody wanted to make a point to show how dangerous he was and didn't think that this was going to be... Because in all, if you were even on a very unsafe set like that, I think it would be almost like muscle memory to assume that's not going to happen. They'll, yeah. If it gets to the point where there's somebody else in the room or Alec has it or whatever, it'll get checked again. And while I won't get to make my point, at least no one will get hurt. Yeah. But because it was so unsafe, it almost was like a, if this was the case, it was like a self-fulfilling. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, Prophecy. Thank you. Yeah. He got it. Thank you. Sorry about that, everybody. He had to listen to my internet brain thinking <laughs> music. Now. The other theory is if it wasn't going after Halls, maybe they were going specifically after Reed. If this was a conspiracy to go after her, who would have something uh, against her? And then you found uh, what you found. Yes. So while we were doing discovery for this, uh, we were posing that exact question. Who are they going after and why? And I found something interesting uh, back in 2020. um, Hannah was at a party with her friend Tyler Dreyer. And her boyfriend, Aaron Butcher. Um, she, they were. <laughs> Stop singing again real quick. Um, they were at this party. Uh, they were drinking. Uh, she said that they saw her, them drink uh, five to six beers. And they were like, hey, we're going to head out. Well, Tyler was not allowed to operate vehicles. He had a DUI. Um, he was only allowed to drive specific vehicles that had a breathalyzer set up into him where he would have to breathe into it for them to start. Um, my family is all too familiar. Um, <laughs> I used to, when I started in the bar business, I had a bartender who had one of those in his truck and I had a moped and the way we would do it is, uh, I would have to drive him home so he could drink after work and I'd do his breathalyzer. And then when I got to his house, I'd take my moped out of the back and ride it home. Nice. <laughs> um, that's a good bar back. That is. Um, I, know that story all too familiar <laughs> as of recently. But um, so she lends Tyler her uh, motorcycle keys and was like, yeah, you guys, you guys can leave whatever. Her motorcycle is not set up with a breathalyzer. He had been drinking that night. Um, and on the way home, he drove her motorcycle directly into a wall and passed away. Um, her or His family wanted to pursue legal uh Action. Understandably. I mean, that's a lot of, not to talk too much, but I mean, obviously we've talked about how she's negligent, but this is a pretty, this is a good example of somebody who's negligent when it's not just work. It's not just, I know plenty of people who are negligent at work that are great, considerate mm-hmm. people who just hate their jobs. This is a person who full well was being irresponsible, young and dumb. Absolutely. I will throw that up on the scoreboard too, but so young and dumb, man, your friend died. You were drunk. He was drunk. He already had a DUI and you let him ride your motorcycle. I've been a motorcycle rider since I was like 14 years old. And I can tell you that the only time I've ever hurt myself was on that aforementioned moped. I wasn't going very fast, but you know what I was? I was drunk and I wasn't, riding on the street. I wasn't, I was just farting around being a dummy in my backyard, but that's when you hurt yourself. It's mm-hmm. always motorcycles demand your faculties. You have to use all four of your, uh, appendages. You have to use all your senses. If you're drunk, there's a really good chance you're going to go down. Yeah. You can't, I'm just saying I'm a motorcycle rider. I've been one my whole life. And if somebody came up to me, if you came up to me and you're an experienced motorcycle rider. You come up to me and you go, Hey man, I want to get out of here. And you're drunk. You're absolutely not getting on my bike. Yeah. Not a fucking chance. I'll call you an Uber. I'll do a thousand things to get you home, but that's about the least safe place you could be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so and every motorcyclist knows that. that's all I'm trying to say. Oh, hundred percent. If we're talking about negligence here, drunk or not, I've been plenty drunk with plenty of motorcycle buddies and not a single one of us would have let a single one of us get on a motorcycle. Yeah. Not a single one. You know, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the family, of course, wanted to pursue uh, legal 
uh, I, I can't think of the word. Legal litigation. action. Yeah, litigation. litigation. Yeah, uh, and criminal litigation. Yes. They wanted her to be held. They wanted to press life. charges. Yeah. Um, but the insurance company and a cop that was on the scene, the cop said that she was not responsible. The only people responsible were speed and alcohol. Guns don't kill people. Yeah. Um, and the they reached a settlement agreement for $50,000. So uh, she got off scot-free, and this family now knows that their son's life is worth $50,000. Yeah, and in a case that's been as flagrant as it is, I think it's easy. That feels... I would be very frustrated if I was... In that situation, 50 grand is nothing for a person's life. And I'm not saying that 50 million would have made it better. I think some actual, uh, you know, punitive action, some accountability to say, hey, I fucked up. I'm so sorry. That was a huge mistake. So the uh, theory that we theorized from this is the family knew that they couldn't do litigation for their son. But what they could do is make her responsible for another accident. To where she could get tried for. Yeah, basically, like, if I couldn't, I can never charge you for the murder of my son. Yeah. But there's a good chance that you're going to cause somebody else to die. She's working this on set at this Nick Cage film. They find out that she's been fired because she was shooting guns off irresponsibly, and he was furious about it, and they go, oh, shit. That's a good cover. She's so irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And now she's working this movie with this other producer who's super irresponsible. While it's very... Likely that this was just pure negligence. Negligence on that level is a tremendously good cover Mm -hmm. for uh, something slightly more conspiratorial. So, yeah, I could see the family of this kid wanting to come back and get real revenge. And not revenge, but maybe just make sure that Hannah sees some form of real justice. Since she, yeah, effectively got away scot-free with... It's unfair to say killing, and that you know that's also, I think, libel. Um, But allegedly playing a very large part in allowing this guy to put himself in a position that killed him. Yeah. Um, To go to, I have two other smaller theories of what could have caused this. One is because of the things that happened prior to this investigation, everything. And that is uh, the chief gaffer or the chief of lighting for rust um, actually now has a class action lawsuit Against Alec Baldwin, the assistant director, the armor, and all of the producers. Well, because Baldwin was a producer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he is saying that because he was a very close friend uh, with the cinematographer, that he deserves um, f- like monetary compensation. compensation for emotional distress. But a lot of crew members are now tacking on to that um, class action. And so, the th- like I said, it's a very small theory, but this theory is they made something happen, I believe, with the same theory of it being the union, is they didn't mean for someone to get hurt, but they wanted something big and substantial to happen to where they could get this class action lawsuit, because like I said earlier, it has been weeks since anyone's been paid. Yeah. yeah. So, you make something big happen, you make something headline happen, you You're file a class action. Salary. We're going to sue you for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're able to then sue and make make money some way. Yeah. Um, and the last theory, again, short theory that I have, is the assistant director, good old David Halls, <laughs> now is kind of virtue signaling this whole situation. He has gone on and on now that the film industry needs to reevaluate its values um, that we are shocked and saddened that this could even happen. We really need to put, said, it is my hope that this tragedy prompts the industry to reevaluate its values and practices to ensure no one is harmed through the creative process again. Um, he said he's been overwhelmed by the love and support he's received and that he can't believe anything like this would happen. Dude, you are notorious for being negligent and being a shitty person. Yeah, that couldn't be more full of shit. Like, I can't believe that I would allow this to happen. Yeah. Yeah, you're the guy who everybody on your set was saying, he's forcing us to run shit. We're going too fast. You're notorious for running shots without... uh, He's notorious for having uh, guns fired without letting people get ear protection. Yep. Like, all these little infractions, maybe in his fuck 
fucking broken brain. He thinks that all those little things, it's like when a, you know, a, a little kid tries to justify little white lies versus big lies. Like a lie is a fucking lie. Yeah. Um, and to me, it feels like he's like, well, you know, all those safety infractions aren't the same. She, she died. Dude, a gun went off inappropriately, uh, two days previous twice. Yeah. Three days previous, whatever on this shoot. What are you talking about? Like, why didn't you stop for a moment? And also, you're going to pretend to be this, like, super caring guy. You, again, worked on the sequel to The Crow. If you care this much, why didn't you care then? Why didn't it get through your head then? And if people want to be like, well, you know, he slowly figured it out. Well, him slowly figuring it out cost this woman her life. Yeah. One way or another. Whether it was a larger setup because he's so irresponsible that somebody wanted to prove a point, win a lawsuit, or... He hired a person who's so irresponsible in her own personal life that somebody might have a vendetta to come after her at work. But either way, something bad happened because of negligence. Yeah, and this one just reminded me of, like, the joke. If you're in the service industry, you probably know the joke of if you complain enough to your managers, you're going to get a pizza party. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, he was, like, he had these multiple discharges. He had people walk out because of how bad the crew members were being treated and not listened to. He had the whole housing issue. And so once something did happen, he coming up on top and being like, the film industry needs to change. That's a good way to like, oh shit, a lot of bad stuff's about to surface about me. If I get on top of this and I spin it, or if I find a way to make my image look better, he is a hundred percent the type of guy who would do that. And as we see, has been doing that. Absolutely. So. Yeah, Halls was such an irresponsible person that uh, it's very, very... People like to throw the term virtue signaling around. It's when you have your entire life been hypocritically doing the opposite thing that today you've decided is different. You have to wait a little while. you got to prove your shit. It's called paying your dues. And yeah. the reason people get mad at people who immediately change their opinion and on Twitter or wherever is because, yeah, it feels fucking superficial. Sometimes mm-hmm. if you're going to change your mind, you got to change your mind, lay in the cut, sit in the back of the room with the people whose team you want to be on, earn your place, get to know everybody, ingratiate yourself, you know? Yeah. Get to know the locals. And that's true whether you're changing your mind or moving cities. And this dude just feels, it feels so fucking fake. And I will say that um, you and I are experts in something. I'm considered to be like an actual super professional expert in what I do for a living. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people and uh, about what we do for a living. I run bars and I specifically make bar stuff, do cocktail stuff. And if I were to ask you, how do you make your grenadine? most people who know how to do it, barring any sort of like uh, social thing are going to be able to be rattle off the recipe pretty quick. And be like, Oh, well I approach it like this. I do this in the interview that Hannah has about her blanks. When they ask her, they flat out ask her, the interviewer is like, Oh, well she, cause she's talking about having to learn a new system while being there with these bullets. The interviewer goes, Oh, well what's your system? And she goes, what? And if you did that to me, and I asked you your old-fashioned recipe, and the thing that came out of your mouth was a long, crackly pause, I would go, oh, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You're yeah. lying to me. I can tell you right now. And, yeah, that's about a different thing, but we all lie the same regardless of what we're lying about. Yeah. There was a level of inexperience there um, that was dangerous no matter what. Yeah. And Halls facilitates that. So, ultimately, like, when people want to talk about whose fault it is – even if it was purely negligence and there wasn't a conspiracy at hand, it was it falls on Halls and Reed. Yeah. And what's wild is I think Reed knows that. Yes. And I think Halls knows that. And I think they're trying two very different ways to try to distance themselves. Halls is doing the white guy thing of condemning everything and saying, oh, no, that's bullshit. And Reed is doing the white victim lady thing, which is, no, 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 I was set up. And what's going to be interesting is to see if she was, in fact, set up. Yep. Uh, and we've sort of run through what we think might be the way she could have been set up and maybe why she was set up. Uh, maybe it's her past, you know, irresponsibilities that have come back to haunt her. Maybe she was purely negligent. Um, I think regardless, somebody knew. Uh, and I think that it played a role. I don't think Alec Baldwin wanted uh, to hurt anybody. I think he's a good patsy for yeah. something like this because he's the nice guy. People forget, you know, they talk about, like, I won't get political, but when they talk about the left and the right and their progress, the right makes progress because they're aggressive. They're aggressive, and they're cutthroat, and they do things like invade the Capitol. Um, people on the left, when Al Franken was accused of uh, sexual misconduct, he did the right thing, and he gave up his job right away. Yeah. When... Uh, you know, 
somebody else, I, Matt Gates, you know, somebody's accused, they choose not to. They stand up. This feels like the two parties are taking their yeah. two, you know, like Hulls is taking a very Republican stance, which is like, you're right, none of this should happen. Something I definitely had nothing to do with, and I will judge anybody who does because they're awful. And her response is kind of like, well, what the fuck? I've been set up. So it'll be interesting to see if she was, in fact, set up. What comes out with this case? Obviously, we'll keep up with it. I have a feeling that before the end of the year, and eh, we'll see how it goes, but uh, we'll probably hopefully have a resolution or some more resolution to this case. Let us know what you think is going on, what you think happened. Um, leave it in the comments, please. Uh, we had a really great response last week yeah. uh, on the story, so please, by all means, let us know what you think happened because it is an interesting story. Do you think uh, Do you think Reed is telling the truth? Do you think she was a setup? And if she was set up, how do you think it happened? Do you think it was this DUI situation that came back to Hunter? Do you think uh, it was somebody trying to make a point on behalf of the union? Unions have been known to, to do some sketchy things. Rest in peace, Jimmy Hoffa. So, no, we're pro-union. We are. Just don't fuck with them. Yeah. You fucking scab. Uh, with that said, thank you guys very much for enjoying the show. It is uh, our favorite time of it's the riddle time. week. It's riddle time. I mean, I got to make a riddle time theme. <laughs> so we got like a little jingle for riddle time. Um, last week's riddle was, I can be long or I can be short. I can be grown or I can be bought. <laughs> I forgot about this. I can be painted or left bare. I can be rounded or left square. It was penis. The answer to that the riddle was is penis. penis. No, it was fingernails. <laughs> the answer was fingernails. Okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. Uh, this one, it's more of a, a, a thinking one. Um, a man walks into town. Uh, it's a very small town and decides to get a haircut. Uh, there are two barbers in town, so he checks them both out to see which one uh, he should get a haircut at. Looks them up and down. Uh, the first one, he walks in. The shop is extremely untidy. The barber it has a face full of sh- uh, a face full of facial hair. Uh, his clothes are unkempt, and his hair is badly cut. So hobo barber. Yes, he goes to the second shop. Um, the shop is incredibly neat. Uh, the barber is freshly shaved, spotlessly dressed, and his hair uh, looks really nice. It's neatly trimmed. Handsome barber. Uh, the man immediately makes up his mind. Walks to the the barber shop he wants to go to. So the question is, what barber shop did he go to, and why? Leave it in the comments, and also let us know what you think happened in this case. It's a pretty wild one, and because it's a current case, we're definitely interested in what you guys think. Uh, but otherwise, we'll be back next week. We love you very much. Thank you for enjoying the show. We'll see you. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>